This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodneck. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center, and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Sufi practitioner and strategic consultant Richard Webb. In this conversation, we discuss the challenge of rising above the cloud of malaise that can so seductively hold our attention the utilization of breath and the energetic system of the body to support us in this challenge, and how the human biological machine is naturally designed to enable us to rise up to take all of this on. Richard brings an earthy and immediate wisdom to our conversation that is both deadly serious yet leavened with humor and compassion. As a young man, Richard entered into an intensive apprenticeship with noted Sufi teacher Rashad Field, and ultimately worked with Field and his community for almost 20 years. Having established himself in the world both professionally and with a family, he found himself at a crossroads in the early 2000s that led to his initiation into a shamanic tradition. His work was soon complemented with the initiation into the Tibetan Chod tradition, which weaved in a web of community support into the sometimes wild and elemental work of the shamanic tradition. Throughout these epical shifts in his spiritual work, Richard maintains a clarity about the nature of practice and the essence of spiritual transformation. Professionally, Richard has been driving the development of cutting-edge solutions in global Fortune 500 environments in the high-tech industry for over 20 years. He brings big-picture vision to both operational and digital transformation by applying lean concepts to optimize systems, streamline processes, and reduce costs while managing multi-million dollar budgets and corporate change. Additionally, he cultivates collaboration to bridge development operations and implementation while building highly productive teams that increase enterprise resiliency and security. Richard Webb, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Uh, thank you. Wonderful to be here. Well, it's great to be with you again. and. Um, because you've been on the show before, and it was a memorable show for us, and I assume for uh, some of our listeners as well, I'll just invite you if, to update people on what you're up to in terms of your spiritual journey uh, since our last show. I don't know exactly how long ago that About was. About a year ago. About a year ago, I think. A little bit more, I, I suspect. Um, so if there's anything that uh, you wanted to... Uh, uh, update, uh, but otherwise, of course, we have uh, a wonderful topic to jump into. After well, that, just, I mean, in the last year, it's really, I mean, for myself, the bulk of the effort, I mean, just kind of like to catch up a little bit, is uh, looking at this whole concept of identification mm-hmm. and looking mm-hmm. at all the splits that are happening, the polarization around us. That includes, you know, me personally and really trying to get behind that and see all that. Um, there's a lot of the Gurdjieff-type work, which I'm, I'm older now, and it's interesting. I'm actually grateful to have kind of met it in a more formal way, even mm-hmm. though it's, I've heard about it. 
I'm not big into studying dead people. I prefer the living, but at the same time, there's a tremendous wealth there that I get to look at and work with, and I met some really interesting people in that arena. I think that's a real progression from a year ago, is mm -hmm. the body of that, and incorporating much, you know, much of the richness of that, but that point of view of getting behind the behind uh, through the education. <laughs> that, that has a couple of meanings, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, it's been very helpful, very helpful, uh, personally, and uh, I find it interesting. The rest of it is still in place. There's not a lot of change there from our previous conversation. Yeah. Well, uh, just to, and just to remind uh, listeners, uh, you, you part of, a, a strong part of your training was in the uh, uh, Sufi tradition, uh, particularly with Rashad Field, and um, the... In addition to that, you described uh, intensive work you've done uh, with uh, in the shamanic lineages and also Tibetan Buddhism. Yes, but, the, but your but your pri primary center of gravity is the uh, Sufi tradition. Well, the well is a Sufi. Yeah, but the funny thing is, you keep digging down. I keep hitting Tibet. I don't know why. I guess the well's in Tibet, but it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps coming up Tibet. Yeah, Every, you know the dirt. So it's interesting. Okay. And so it, it's interesting that as you have been exposed more to the fourth way tradition, there's certainly the implication that much of Gurdjieff's work was at least influenced by, if not uh, uh, directly, at least tangentially by the uh, Sufi tradition. Yeah, there's a synergy there that's, yeah. that's beyond... Uh, is intentional. We, we, we've uh, uh, met some people who come out of lineages that uh, whose teacher claimed to actually have been in a Sufi community with Gurdjieff in a period of time. Um, yeah. And so there's there's certainly a lot of familiarity and a lot of sense of, uh, uh, I don't know, commonality or similar DNA in, in some of the uh, perspectives and some of the, the practices that are... Um, uh, realized. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot less syllables in some of the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, um, when I made a suggestion to some fourth way friends recently that that uh, Gurdjieff was uh, uh, using using a lot of the tools available, including those uh, many polysyllabic words. Um, there's another one right there for you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I suggested that that uh, part of his strategy was was to undermine the commitment uh, to the uh, intellectual realm, um, right. to the surface intellectual realm, and uh, I received some surprising uh, negative feedback on that. Uh, but I've, I'm I'm still persuaded that that that's something that Gurdjieff needed needed to do because the, the high-power folks he was working with, in fact, had a, a baseline commitment to that that needed to be undermined. So and Some of us have such a strong emotional nature, it's never going to work to be terribly intellectual. Yeah, so, right. So, you know, we, we have to come from it from whatever angle, and he provided so many angles yeah. in his work and his teaching. He did, but, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, and what, what was pointed out to me, which was absolutely true uh, by a, a, a fourth-way friend, when I raise this point, is that Gurdjieff 
worked with emotionally based people all the time. In fact, very successfully and, and, and notably. physically based people. And physically based yeah. people. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah. 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 We, we, we all we all have what we have, and yeah. it's wonderful. Just wonderful. It is. So so why don't we get into the uh, the meat of the moment? The meat of the moment. Well, I'll tell you, um, we. Uh, or I'll tell our listeners that that we engage in a weekly conversation, and you were on that the conversation last week. This is, of course, uh, in these uh, uh, times, a Zoom conversation, and uh, you used the word malaise, a yes. good uh, a good French derived word, and. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly the the. I, I don't have the uh, exact definition in my head right, right at the moment. But it actually, I think, probably means something like bad air. Yeah. And so, um, you referred to that or used that word in reference to your uh, passion for the point of view that there there that this is a moment in history that calls upon senior practitioners of whatever tradition to not espouse, to not reflect, simply and mechanically reflect the malaise around the pandemic, around political um, divides, um, around the many challenges that we have in the world today, and that really, <clears throat> excuse me, that really resonated for me. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I, I wrote um, a piece to a, uh, a short piece to, uh, to a Tibetan uh, Buddhist tradition friend, friend of ours, and he too um, resonated, that resonated for him as well. So I guess um, I want to begin this conversation by, by asking you to talk about this point of view that I've briefly summarized, I'm sure not, not adequately, um, but um, and expand upon it because I think this is a really important uh, point of view that is not necessarily for most people and even senior practitioners, it isn't necessarily obvious. Yeah. You know, the, the struggle for me lately is I've been really pondering what can one say right now that hasn't been said that people mm -hmm. could really benefit from? Because so much is out there. We're mm -hmm. just inundated with everyone's opinion, everyone's point of view. It's just endless. So part of me was saying silence is probably the best course of action during this period, mm -hmm. which didn't turn last long. So I said the recent <laughs> situation. You spoke and, a lot about silence, then. We'll yeah, say. <laughs> and, and just the minute I started speaking, it went away. And the, I, you know, and in this conversation, I, I'm holding that as an intention of like what what could be what could be discussed between us that that could could potentially be a benefit or interesting from a point of view that's just not regurgitating or, you know, mixing or just continually, you know, rambling on about what's going on mm -hmm. because there's enough of that. But what I come to is that we're beyond polarization. The, the separation of sheep and goats, which is an interesting concept that was discussed, you know, early on, there's been a separation. 
between the concept of sheep and goat. And that's a metaphor, obviously. Uh, but the key is you need both. You, you can't just have a bunch of sheep and a bunch of goats. You still need the dog to, you know, keep the sheep, you know, protected. And you need you need a lot there, okay? But this, there's been a lot of separation, good, bad, and ugly. And they say in the Sivi tradition, God, you know, divides in order to unite. Because it's all based off unity, but it's a, mm -hmm. it's a union. But you need a division to have the clarity to unite. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, is we're past polarization at this point in our, in our experiment as humans. And sides are drawn, and people need to lawfully, and I hate the word because it's so fourth uh, way, but it is <laughs> correct to take sides. There is reason to take sides if that's what one is inclined to do inside. It's, otherwise, you're abandoning yourself by pretending not to take a side, which is an illusion. If there's a side drawn, are you going to do it? Now, there is a third force or a third way of looking mm -hmm. that you may or may not say that is this, where I'm at, okay? Or you can say, I'm not, I'm not playing. I'm not part of the system. Well, that's fine. That just means you're delaying the decision. Or you're saying, I take this side, but I don't know. I'm going to test it, and then I'll try the other side. And that means you're, you're, you're learning. I'm not here to take sides or to say what is right, what is wrong, because there's a lot going on. And it's very, frankly beyond um, a, a real good discussion around it. And most of it probably just needs to be experienced and really felt at a deep level for resolution, which may take years yeah. or decades. And, you know, it's inevitable. This, these moments have been not prophesied. They've been told directly that we're going to be dealing with this. And we told ourselves and we've told each other. There's nothing new here that we don't know, that we haven't been taught or trained for, those of us who, you know, think we're trained. But now it's a test. Are we trained or do we know anything? Have we done anything? You know, now it's all coming up, you know, to, to, to face. And this is where I went into the malaise and thinking about this idea. There's really three aspects I'm looking at. The malaise, mm -hmm. which is the collective energy of everything thrown off by all of us that creates an atmosphere around us it is so powerful and the media and in and, and, and the situation where i live people wander around and they you know knock on the door and they want to talk about the malaise because they're completely swept into it and it's really and you feel it it's it's sometimes it feels bigger than anything else that's inside yeah well, isn't that in, in but that, that last point is very interesting. I, there was a lot that came up from what you just said, but, um, but uh, it seems to me that that's, this is a key point right here is what's bigger and, and what perspective can one resort to, if you will, um, that can encompass that malaise. At least that's, that's how I've been I hear you responding good. to it. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying to be clever, but there's a haze that's mm -hmm. also in the malaise where we can't see, where we, mm -hmm. it has a thickness to it. Because mm -hmm. uh, the malaise really is, it, it really it permeates everything. Well, so the, I think 
a question for me is, I understand certainly with notions like identification and how the way people ordinarily run their consciousness and their whole framework of relationship to their experience is that they're embedded in an, an external world and things happen and they respond or they react. And so Absolutely. A malaise may be a natural uh, uh, reasoned response to uh, no, what they... It's bigger than that. The malaise is here always. It's the stuff we throw off psychically and emotionally and mentally. It's, it's the stuff we show off. It has a certain agreement to it. We call it culture, but we also it, it permeates the atmosphere all around us. But but that's that's this is what I'm trying to get at is that um, uh, yes that 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 is a natural byproduct of what I'd say identified. Uh, experience and mind sort of going from one uh, shock to the next shock in terms of uh, external experiences conditioning uh, uh, the quality of our experience right. and so the question for uh, senior practitioners in terms of a contribution in this moment is that it seems to me that spiritual training if, if among other things provides the tools to step out of that malaise. malaise. Yeah, yeah I, I look at it, it, it like, a, to me it's kind of experiential like a cloud, and then you get above it, mm. kind of right okay. above it. Because mm -hmm. I, I, it's kind of, it really does, I'm, I'm an architect, so there's, it feels like there's a geometry to it all. And... It's like when you're in love, everything is just colorful, and you try to stay in it as much as you can until it seems to dissipate. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing with this type of thing, it doesn't ever dissipate. It just You're closer to it or you're further away, but it's always there because it's fed continuously through our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions. And it's the collectiveness of our stuff that seems to often be bigger. And in times like this, it is really strong. It has a certain pull to it. So the thing is, is people who who can understand that concept and not identify with the malaise, and I'm using that word because I just don't want to use any other word. I can't think of another word to call it. You, there's so many words, you know, the dark cloud or whatever metaphor people have. But there's there's three aspects to it. There's this haze where I can't see. It's like a fog. Mm -hmm. And then what I call this rays is that I get emotional and I, I mentally want to do something. I, 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 I want to you know destroy or I want to create or I want to take a side or I want to be in opposition or I want to do something because I feel I have to be in action or with it. And, it, and that tends to be a burning kind of sensation. I, I've got you know, there's a drive there. And, and, but, where I'm going with is, in this time period, what I'm getting for me and, and trying to suggest here is just getting above this a bit is a huge help. Mm -hmm. Just that alone is a huge help. It sounds simple. When I was working with the Helvetti back in the 80s, they you know, said this time would come. 
you know, except everybody thought it'd be in the 90s, of course, and then they thought in the 2000s, <laughs> and that worked 2020, right? And it's always, and, and there have been people who have been working really hard to slow things down. Um, <laughs> so the, the session around J.G. Bennett was, you know, try to slow things down as much as you can to give people time to adjust so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater like we always do or get totally uh, rash in our actions to allow a certain level of intelligence to be available during times of change. And having intelligence or knowingness available is a key aspect of people who, who choose to work on the inside and out from a different perspective, is to keep that available and accessible during difficult times. So we liken that to bags of water. And there was a young lady who asked, you know, uh, Jake Lucifer at the time, uh, what do we do during this period? And he said, well, the wind will blow really hard. And it'll be hard to walk. You'll get knocked down a lot. So you need to carry, you know, a bag of water. Go to the well, which we've already talked about, and get water and carry it. And then the uh, young lady asked a very interesting question, which annoyed everyone. And uh, he goes, no, no, no. You carry two bags of water, not one. And she said, why? And that didn't go real well, because why questions don't usually do well in those forms. And they said, obviously, one for yourself and one for someone else. And also, he says, ever tried to carry one heavy bag of water? You carry two so you're balanced. Right. So you can walk. Otherwise, you're going to be pulled by the water everywhere you go which I thought was a very fascinating statement early, early on in the 80s. It stuck with me my entire life, that, that simple metaphor. And they said, you will fall down. Just try not to spill the water. Because if you get to your destination and it's all empty, you got to go back to the well. And you're not really helpful. It's just a lot of work, but you're not helpful to yourself or others. So then, you know, we, we, we fast forward many years, decades. And the key is, is, you know, what can we do individually and collectively to move forward in a time like this? And I think the water really helped. But this idea of pulling up and out into the side of this collective thinking and trying, to, and not, I hate to use the word trying, but really being open to make intelligence and knowing possible in the moment would be great. And just if people can sense that, that's a huge help. Gives right. an anchoring and, and a thing there. I'm sorry I'm going on a bit, Mahard. It's hard to put these things in words because it's right. so much emotionally based on what I'm really trying to get across. It's really an emotional disposition, not an intellectual or mental position. Well, yeah, to use the, um, uh, I guess, the Gurdjieff uh, metaphor, what you're talking about is a three-centered disposition. It's not just your feeling running amok. It's not just your mind with a good, good idea, and it's not just your body. All three have to be synchronized in this intention to effectively radiate the quality that you're talking about radiating. And, and what's practical here? And, and just for, you know, interest sake, let's just say I pick side A. 
and I don't want to say because we're in a conversation and I don't want to inflame about police or non-police or anarchy versus order or corporate versus non-corporate. I don't want to talk about that. We'll just say side A, whatever A is. And I'm going to go to side A because, frankly, in my experience, that's where I'm at. But the key is, is to recognize there's obviously a side B, and you're going to be in opposition with side B. And like good monkeys, we're going to throw poo at each other because that's what a, A's and B's do. We throw poo, and then we have to because we are monkeys. You know, we do <laughs> like doing that. And we even even, even if it's only psychic poo. Uh, that's fine. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean it that way. But a rock can actually be crystallized poo. And then uh, we could also, um, you know, be dogs and, and pack you know, and, and, and separate that way. And, you know, there's a lot of things we could do. We could be the birds and sit in trees and squawk at everything, you know, that goes by. But we are taking a side, and, and that means something, because there's another side. The key is to remember that there's at least three things or more going on. And that even though you're going to be active in something, just hold the other two possibilities so that there can be eventual resolution, even if not in our lifetime. Yeah. You mean and, like and do you mean like hold the hold the space for openness hold, to so the, the knowing. Other, yeah. Hold the knowing. Yeah. That you took a side. Ah. And own it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got and, you. But, own it. But, but, but don't also, be cruel and don't hurt people and don't be, you know, stupid. Um, I know everything I'm saying is just downright obvious. It is, it is, and and yet being able to manifest it, you know, on a relatively consistent basis, acknowledging, of course, that, of course, carrying the water bags, one one will fall down from time to time because it's rocky ground. We can't see where we're where we're walking. The haze, you know, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so that's all true. But but one of the questions that came up for me earlier in, uh, while you were speaking is one that's been sort of uh, I've been meditating on for, for not just years but decades and that is the, um, the, the metaphor of the, uh, uh, the lone practitioner who goes off into the wilderness. Um, it's, it's a big thing in Taoism um, apparently. I mean I, I, don't, I don't know Taoism well enough to be able to say that for sure but by repute, that's 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 one of the metaphors that gets used. Sometimes in Buddhism as well, the forest dweller who doesn't necessarily come together, or the cave right. dweller, that sort of thing. And so I'm wondering, and we have a friend who who claims to be attracted to that, and yet he has lots of he, he definitely takes sides in the in the way that uh, that you're describing. So I'm wondering about that posture how do you respond to people who say well the you know you just don't want to participate in that i mean i, I have a point of view about this but i want to hear what you have to say about this this idea and how its effectiveness at this well to, to pull out what you're saying is to really take um a, you know a, another approach uh that you're not participating you know, and, you know, to be the forest dweller or the quave dweller means you are pulling back out of the system and you're going to a different system. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's fantasy, 
your your uh, I, I can't use the word because you'll bleep it, but you're you have an ED on the end of the word. You're not going to do well <laughs> um, because fantasy leads nowhere, absolutely right. nowhere. And if it's a good imagination, then you're bringing something in, then you're really focused on bringing in through the creative imagination a new possibility. And that takes time. And that is good to do in isolation. That is good to go out of the system and then start bringing stuff in mm-hmm. that's really going to be helpful and thoughtful and, and good. And, and, you know, the new architecture, so to speak, because that has to be done. We need infrastructure. Yeah. Psychically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, there needs to be real infrastructure mm-hmm. because our infrastructure is melting. That's why this is so painful. So I mean, the inner structures are melting. I want to just uh, pause on that point because uh, I've heard it said in uh, uh, from practitioners and teachers in hermetic communities like Western uh, magical tradition that that they. Uh, that just this very point that a lot of the work of uh, of magical lineages is about bringing in energy now that's going to actually affect the world later. So, for instance, in the first part of the of the 20th century, uh, there was a lot of magical work concerned with uh, environmentalism. Yep. And bringing in that energy because they, 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 it was anticipating a time when that was going to be necessary. So, so to the question that Rob's asking, there's this notion that you know a spiritual practitioner, a senior practitioner who has this kind of ability to intentionally pull in energy through active imagination could be working on something that is really not of concern to the world today because uh, uh, it'll be of a concern to the world tomorrow in a sense because the quality of energy that they are invoking and allowing to permeate from their presence is an energy that will contribute to the solutions tomorrow, but they're not going to necessarily be recognizable as uh, directly responsive to the problems today. Correct. The, the difficulty, though, is in most cases people are biased, and they the solutions they bring in put the flaws back in that created the situation to begin with. And that even though it's a lift up left, it's an uplift. It's not. It, there's it has its negative parts that that bring the past with it, and that's the key. When you pull out of the system, you got to pull out of the system, and you got to be consciously aware that you're not bringing what I call cording, the tentacles or the cording or the Cthulhu aspects of uh, the past because that's the work. You've decided to do something else, then do it, but do it do it well and try to be, and I say try, but be as honest as you can about it. And this is not trying to be preachy or anything. It's just it's going, the malaise will still be there. It's still going to follow everything. Even if you're with bunnies out in the middle of the forest, you're going to be hit with those thoughts. Um, they're not going to just disappear because it's a collective situation that we're in, not individual. But the, the thoughts, the thoughts may be present, but uh, as you were saying earlier, the choice is always available not to identify with the thought. No, no, well, yes, 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 but we are, we, the truth is, we are responsible for this, all of us. We did this. We created all this ourselves. 
There's nobody immune from this. We did but, this. We are accountable. Our treatment of women as men, our treatment of men as women, our, our educational systems, our worship of money. Oh, my God. The God of money, Jesus failed. Everyone failed. They took on the whole money thing. You know, the, the golden calf has been with us forever. It's, it's never been. All the prophets tried. Tried. People wandered in the desert for 40 years, only to build another calf. It doesn't go away. We are accountable. We did this. There's no outside force. There's no one to blame. And because of that, there's no escape. Well, I think that's the key that <clears throat> I'm trying to get across to your last statement, is you can't pull out when there's no escape. There's no escape hatch. If you are, that's fantasy. Well, let, let, let's, let's unpack that a bit, because I'm maybe Argue we're... It, please. Well, like we, may be, we, we may be talking about the different things, or we may be talking about the same thing. Yeah. But the... Uh, uh, question I guess I have is if I certainly as I'm embodied as a human being in this epic I can't escape the lawful consequences of the actions that have preceded me uh, but as a being as an experiencer I have choice as to what my response or what my experience of those consequences are if so, you have yes. yeah, if, if well, but well, yeah, we're talking about having choice because having well, choice, most people don't have a choice. That's true. My but, question: Do we have a choice? Well, that's that's the that's the central question here because the the perhaps it's an illusion. Do we have a choice? We're well, mechanical. Do we have a choice? This is a mechanical failure. Right, but but my the, mechanical systems inside me are making decisions that are really strong. Yes. Do you think I can just override them because I feel like it? Well, if you are, um, if you've engaged in a certain kind of intentional practice over a period of time, the suggestion is that there is a possibility for stepping out of the complete mechanicality. I'm not going to say 100%. Uh, uh, I'm not arguing, but I am a little bit. I'm just kibitzing for fun. Well, yeah, but, but I, I, this is an important point because, I mean, you could take the position, which would be uh, certainly uh, a hallmark of the malaise, that none of it matters, that, that there is no possibility, that we are uh, so largely mechanical that the best we can do is shrug our shoulders and, and be the consequences of the actions of our predecessors and thereby uh, feel deeply at a human level the learnings that we have to learn as a group and thereby, you know, whatever changes uh, roll forward from that will proceed. But I don't, but that's different than pulling yourself out. Yeah, I have to argue with it a little bit because you said a couple of things and I just want to kind of pick at it. No, that's good well, I mean, because I because I it's not our for people who did it our our, our predecessors. It's us in the moment that did this. So I want to be clear what I'm trying to say, and I'm making a statement. It's us that did this in the moment. There's no one to blame because there's only one present moment, and we did it. That knowledge, knowing that I did it, is really powerful. That my mechanical systems and who I am and everything did it, I did it. Okay, it's okay. I had an argument with my ex-wife. Well, it really happened. And she probably was right. 
I was a dick, put in impractical terms. Hard to recover from, but it's the truth. That is powerful. Because that's the reality of the reality, is we're struggling to understand and to know. And, and you know, we fall. And this is a big one because this is collective, because we made some collective agreements that just aren't going to pan out. They're just not going to work. And it's just not going to happen. Okay, so that's the second thing. There's an inevitability to it. Because there was a lot of work to make this experiment go this way. It took a lot of work for people to say no to uh, weather changes and, and climate so, and environment. Oh, but let me, let me, let me, I, I want to be very precise here because you've slipped into using the past tense, and yet a moment ago you were uh, yeah, uh, a third. Yeah, yeah, but the inevitability is from all the collective work. But the accountability is in the moment. And so we're saying the same thing because when I when I uh, well I I I, <laughs> I have to I have to acknowledge the uh, the factors that unroll in the past, and yet I can't escape my accountability for the moment. In other words, the blame is all I'm saying. Well, I, I mean, there, here's a simple uh, a simple example for me that uh, uh, comes up now in the. Um, the racial tensions now, you know, uh, on one side of my family, uh, I have Confederate officers and uh, slaveholders in my lineage. So what is what is the, you know, how am I accountable in this moment? I'm, I'm very accountable. Uh, and so in that accountability, I can choose. I can both I can choose something that's both honoring my past uh, heritage and honoring the moment by looking uh, unflinchingly at the reality of the situation and the reality of uh, the, the benefits that accrued to me and the unconsciousness by which certain systems of coercion were uh, propagated and continue to be propagated today. And so in that sense, you know, in a social way, I can be accountable. I think you're also talking about something bigger, which is like everything, everything I experience, I'm accountable for. Well, I'm not trying to be too big because I want to keep this practical, but the thing is, we, this all stems from the idea of choice. And I don't want to give the illusion that people all have choice. You know, I have feelings about certain things that I was surprised in, in the news, and I had some biases from some of the false news, and I'm looking at it... Um, when did I make that choice? Oh, I didn't make the choice. It's how I, it's where I'm at. It's how I actually feel. It's where I am. And I went, wow, that's really an opposition to that other stuff. And I, I am opposed. I really am. I will go, you know, I ask these fun questions, like when I work with people, I say to them, this is actually a, kind of a, a Sufi thing, but it's like you're walking down the street and you, did, you look over and it's a very busy street. Oh, all well, my robots are kicking off. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, no choice there. Yeah, she, they, they like to jump in at certain points. So it keeps you awake, you know, because um, they say the damnedest things. But the thing is, is you're walking down the street, and you, it's a very busy, dangerous street, you know. But you can, you know, and you look across, and there's some action, something happening on the other side of the street. So the question is, what action on the other side of the street would get you to stop, walk across the busy street, interfere with traffic, and intervene on that situation. 
insert yourself without permission. I'm not asking for the answer. I'm just proposing a question. Because that is compulsion. And compulsion is one of the names of God out of the Quran, Yajabar, and it's a really important aspect of, of divine life and of life living. Compulsion. We have obsession, compulsion, and possession. The three aspects of certain things. Obsession is being, you know, a thought form, being possessed by a thought form. Compulsion's emotional, and possession is physical. Now, we all read about possession, and, you know, that's good exorcist, good extraction material to read. It's very helpful, and it, you know, it happens. Obsession, all the time, especially in high tech. We all get obsessed with things, all these ideas and so on. A compulsion, I think, is an understudied, understudied concept because it's so emotionally based. It's like, what would? And I ask people, and they tell me things like a dog being abused. I, I'll, I'll just, I'll run in front of a car, you know, and I'll stop traffic. I might even get hit, but I'm going to stop that. Or a child being abused. It's usually to protect something is what I, most people say. But a lot of people say other things. Well, the reason I bring up the idea of compulsion, because it, did you really choose that? Or did that come from another part of you in a different place? Because you're going to do it. And it's kind of cool that you're going to do it. Well, I, I have a, I mean, an interesting this idea that came up for me. Because, I, you know, first of all, the way I would answer the question is, I have no idea. Well, you have because, to think about it. It's well, well, no, it, well, it's like I, I can't know until that moment comes. I can say all oh, sorts okay. of things. I can you're say all sorts of things. But, well, uh, but I, I'm thinking of uh, years ago, uh, you know, Rob uh, uh, pioneered this uh, uh, festival called the Festival of Conscious Parenting or the Fa uh, Conscious Family Festival. It had different names at different times. And... The idea was to bring sort of practitioners together to talk about and uh, share in child rearing and have activities for kids and things like that. It was really a nice event. The hard thing was, you know, it, it, it didn't, a lot of people who weren't attracted to weren't practitioners, so it was uh, limited in terms of numbers. But it was uh, on one of the last ones that we did, uh, Rob tells his story of walking out in the parking lot and uh, after this wonderful day and all this all this uh, feeling about being really intentional with kids, and there was a guy shouting at his four-year-old, you know. So in the, then in the, the back of his car. Yeah, in the back of his car. And he could see this, and he could see the guy shouting. Right could, next to the car, the, to my car, yeah, where I was bringing right. stuff back. So, so then the question is, what's the right thing to do? Because on the one hand, fueled with fury, you could call that guy out. And yet, instantaneously, as as you've told the story, you knew you knew that if you do that, it will actually go worse for the girl later. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, that's a moment I, I wouldn't know. But but, what was one compelled to do, or was one not compelled? Because you're talking about an overriding thing, an overriding where you stop, you separate, you pull back, you disidentify, and then you move on. Good practice. But I'm, I'm curious. I mean, maybe but you could compulsion talk about blows that away. Blows that away because you know what? You're, it comes from a different place. 
That's what I'm trying to get well, to. Well, I, and I get that, and that's what, uh, and that's that. I agree with you that that's an interesting place to try Especially to explore. in this time period. In this time period, Ab- absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I, last night I listened to a podcast that went on for like an hour, detailing the history of slavery, etc., in this country. We love our robots. We do, don't we? Well, I'm going to have to turn that little puppy off. So anyway, um, the uh, the point is that we do, Stuart Stuart made the point. We don't really know until we try it. We can try exploring using the tool you just offered. Um, and yet, what we really don't know what's going to happen because each moment when things happen is uniquely composed of factors that we could never entirely predict. So what, I, what I'm saying, and I agree, what I'm saying is in the time period, because you asked the question to start yeah. this, you know, what, what would be useful for senior or practitioners who, who you know, believe they're working on things and want mm-hmm. to work on things in this time period? And I'm proposing an idea around study compulsion for oneself. Just mm-hmm. take the time to look at it. Now, during another period of time, I had a, a colleague of mine, a dervish-type person who was working with me, who wanted to teach me something. And I love the dervish types because it's always um, colorful and fun. And they said, everyone steals. And I said, bullshit, not everyone steals. They go, everyone steals. And I go, no, 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 they don't. So we got in a big argument. And he goes, you know, what is your threshold where you would steal? He asked me. And I'm going, that's that's unconceivable. That's just wrong. And he goes, I'm a pack of cigarette man. If I don't have a pack of cigarettes, I'd steal. He goes, it's not, it's like if you need a Learjet and you're willing to steal, that's a lesser being. So you go by what is the lowest threshold where you would steal? That is a greater being. And I'm going like, holy I don't understand what they're saying. So... Some bad situations I call bad in my life, and I became extremely poor where I had to like 50 cents in my pocket wandering the street. It was a very difficult period, and I was hungry. And what I did is I took a very sophisticated, you know, spiritual book that would blow anyone's mind, and I'd go to a coffee shop, and I would take the tip, slide it over with the book, buy a cup of coffee, and then put the rest of the tip back on the table. Because I really wanted a cup of coffee. Because I couldn't eat. And his words were just singing in my ears. And I'm going, I'm doing this. And I was a young man. So that to me off the hook, right? Because I was young. Oh, yeah, we don't age. So I guess that's just <laughs> not going to work. So um, I did it. Now, the funny story is I really did it. And I'm watching this going, what the hell? And what he was trying to teach me is survival mode. When will survival mode kick in where you need to survive? The lower your threshold, the safer you are. If you need Learjets, you're, you know, you're, you're a dangerous person. But if, he, I told him, I called him, I said, well, I do it for coffee. And he goes, oh, you're a better man than me. I do it for the vice of cigarettes. And they cost a lot more than a cup of coffee. And then he wanted to know my method, and I told him. And I was pretty ashamed of myself. And the person goes, well, that's a good lesson. Now, here's the fun part of the story. I'm so clever. So one day the waitress comes up, and she goes, you know, here's some pickles. They're 
you're going to get heartburn, you know, just eating pickles and, 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 and coffee. How's your job search? It's really difficult. The waitresses knew what I was doing. <laughs> she goes, would you like a bowl of soup with uh, coffee and pickle? And I started crying. It was a Jewish restaurant, but she goes, it's okay. We'll pay you back. We'll get you out of you later. <laughs> you will recover, and we will hurt you. And I was like, you're stealing my tips, but how would you like a bowl of soup? She never said a word. I felt devastated, and it stopped. Whatever that behavior was in me stopped at that moment. And I can luckily say I dropped down to pens after that until a lady took me out and let me have it. Stabbed me with her own pen, metaphorically. And I'm going like, why would I take a pen? Anyway, it kind of went wound down to not stealing. Well, let me let me just jump in here because um, uh, what what's, what's coming up for me is that, I mean, you're talking about physical things. And I, and I yeah. get that because that's, that's, that's easy to look at. But the truth is what I see around me enacted so much and in myself is stealing attention. Yes. Oh, thank you. It's, you, it's you like so far. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, most people have no idea that they're doing that. Yeah. Not in the least. And, and I use the physical because it's easy to yeah. lay out yeah. the story. Right. Right. But compulsion, this aspect of compulsion and this aspect of taking mm -hmm. in this time period is, is tested. It's going to give us insight. And, you know, not to be shameful or to be guilty or, you know, because people, we're going to do what we're going to do, especially in crisis modes. So I'm throwing that up. And then, you know, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago or last week was, you know, what is available to us to really help us with this idea of the malaise or this, these situations where we're going to be really pressed. So we talked about a couple of things to observe that might be useful and help us to understand how much choice we really have and what choices we're really going to make because that's who we are is this idea of breath and yes. then we talked about wings and so on I, I i use this metaphor for real um i had a lot of email good bad and ugly from our conversation um and some people freaked out over it they thought it was very fanciful and you know whatever but i'm going to stick to this because i really have conviction around it and uh, one person sent me a thing from Isaiah. I just don't have it in front of me. Mm -hmm. And it was funny. It was uh, it lined up to something Isaiah said in, in the Bible about the six wings. Mm. And remember, we talked about the six. Yeah. Oh, and maybe, maybe you could just uh, recount the wings. Uh, yeah. I mean, so that our listeners can, uh, can yeah. uh, understand so what's going on. I, I, I tried, I, I was working with this, with this idea of malaise and haze and rays, you know, it's just, but this whole thing going, this is hard. It's even hard for people who think they're on top of something. You know, water does not roll off the spiritual back like a duck. It does not. It sticks. It gets gooey. It just, 
the more deep you get, the more things hurt. And that's Martin Buber, by the way. I just badly paraphrased him. But it really is true. It, it, you know, it doesn't get lighter. It gets heavier with meaning. And sadness is wider and deeper and infinite. And um, so this, this idea here was we have the ability to fly above the malaise. And I use the word flying because it's atmospheric is what I'm talking about, very atmospheric. Mm-hmm. And the atmosphere is toxic. So it seeps. Some people, they thrive on that, and it's actually a food for them. And I'm not here to judge, because it takes all types to make this world work and to make the universe work thing. It takes all types. That's, some, that's the third aspect between the, uh, the um, compelling and the what I call survival, the stealing, the taking, is to realize it takes all types. Not just your type, but it takes all types of beings. So that's, what do we judge? That's the third part I wanted to throw in. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the, obvious. That's the way, obvious. The way I uh, uh, often phrase it to people is, did God make a mistake in creating that person or that Absolutely. You know? uh, or what, you know, I have a full pie. What slice am I not going to eat, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, and right now they try to go black and white as the slices, and it's not true. I mean, the gender thing is even, I mean, it just goes on and on, you know. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because everybody <laughs> knows that. I don't think we need to even explore that very deeply right. because that's like one-on-one, what, what, you know, what to do. The other two are a little more complex. But that one is real. So that fills out that story. But the idea of the wings is we have an apparatus built into us to deal with this. And talking to a friend yesterday uh, who told me every there's a cluster of generations from my uh, parents to my children. It's kind of a cluster mm-hmm. that's dealing with this. Now, if you go down to my grandparents and their cluster, they dealt with the, war, the Depression and the World War. We've been dealing with this in these general clusters forever. And I, said, I just did it in my head, and I went, nothing's changed. We're st- I mean, I didn't have the Vietnam War because I'm in between, but now I got this. But wait a minute, if I was back then and I had that mind, it'd be the same thing. It's the same thing. And I went, oh, we haven't progressed at all. This is the same stuff. It's just now it's global because we have the Internet, and we're going to do a global phenomenon for the first time, have a global pandemic. We're going to make this big because there's nowhere to run from us. Thank God. We've reached the evolution where there is nowhere to run. Because if you get there, as one friend said, they probably deforested the forest. So you try to leave, and you find out they already cut down the trees. You run in the cave, and there's a few barrels of Dr. Glaze. It's like, <laughs> you know, where are you going to run to that you're going to get away? And when you see you get there, your, your phone's dead, and you got to go out and charge it. So, you know, it's a problem right now. So the idea is, is how can we rise above the malaise? Using that as a real metaphor, to rise above, to lift up and out. And that's a concept of wings, which is in every single religion, every single spiritual paper, everything you read, wings are real. Not a concept. And I even question if they're really a metaphor. 
the first set of wings that everyone knows is the back. They actually, the muscles look like a set of wings, and they control the breathing mechanism through the central chest. And in the phylicalia, the lungs are so important because they surround the heart. And you can change your emotional nature through breath. And it hap we do it all the so, time. So the uh, lungs are the second set of wings. No, the first set is, it's a, it's a compound issue. It's the muscles in the back yeah. with the lungs, which hold the atmosphere, that surround the heart, and, the, and the, what I call the origin point is the breastplate. Okay. Right here, the breast. That is a mechanism yes. of wings. Now, those are wings that everybody gets. You have them, you don't. You can be a cherub with little wings, or you can be a goddamn big thing, bleep, bleep, really big thing. With big wings, okay? It doesn't matter. They're wings. Um, and then another set, and that really allows us to change our emotional nature. And anyone who's had their heart broken through love knows that they spend a great deal of time breathing with, the, with that mechanism to overcome the grief of the lost love. Um, I know because I have, I've dealt a lot with grief, and it's real. And I was talking to a nurse, and they say, yeah, people in emotional pain, they automatically curl up and start working these, these breaths. There's no logic. There's no education. They're not spiritual. They're just trying to emotionally survive. The uh, second set of wings um, are really the face mask. Uh, you know, like you people wear masks on their mm -hmm. face. You go to parties, right? And they have whiskers. Stuff. It's the sinuses. And in the breathing of that, you can change thought. Yes. And now you brought up from your sensei that, you know, the facial muscles. And I'm working with my sensei, and he's working with the facial muscles. So, uh, yeah, let me, let, me, let me just elaborate on that point for our listeners. Uh, uh, when we talked about this concept uh, uh, earlier about the wings, uh, I remarked that it's very precise in its descriptions along the same lines that my uh, shakuhachi or Japanese bamboo flute teacher uh, uses in some very, very sophisticated high-level training that uh, I'm engaged with with him in order to extract, uh, not extract, but actually to convey a living nuance in the sound that's produced. And one of the, I, I, I talked to him about the notion of sinuses because one of the arenas in which uh, I've had to put attention is what he calls the nasal cavity balloon. You know, right. to, to, to be conscious of the feel, the subtle feel of the presence there while playing creates a quality in the sound that is detectable um, by him I can hear the quality being different, and uh, someone outside of me, like Rob, can hear a quality that's different. Uh, he can pinpoint it. Other people, they just feel better when they hear the sound. Okay. Um, but his his point was that uh, in order the the sinuses don't have muscles themselves, so in order to actually activate them, you need to use the subtle muscles of the face. So there's a lot of work I'm doing right now about the eye below muscles the smiling muscles, the jaw muscles, the forehead, you know, all of these things come to play and they convey 
an <coughs> activation that allows a quality of energy to come through. Sure. And you're perfecting that mechanism through the work. So so singers and you know musicians yes. they use this area. Now I want to correct something or be more precise because what you said was true and I kinda of passed over it quickly. The muscles in the back and you know, the ones that look like wings, they're physical wings. Yes. That's the physicality of the body. You know, mm -hmm. this this flexing through the pecs and everything. Okay. Um, that's physical. The lungs around the heart is the emotional wings. Okay, so I want to do a little, and they're funny that they're so close to each other, because, you know, emotions and physicality are tight. And then you go up and you've got this mask, really this face mask, um, if you can get my, my, my the vision of it. Yeah. And it's kind of a set of wings on the forehead, right? And if you watch Japanese anime, they always put these wings on the, on the head and on the chest and on the back, you know, and you're like, they get it. Yeah, and those are the three sets of wings. Now, well, let me let me just jump in yeah. here real quick because I'm going to add something to this thing about the the uh, the sinuses because I had the experience uh, uh, through my anthropological training to take a human osteology course in order to you know it's something that you had to do for paleoanthropological study, and so I've had the occasion to examine quite a few human skulls human skulls, real human skulls. Yep. And the sinus, the, the, the configuration of these incredibly delicate little bubble chambers connect, all connected to each other, the sinus, is utterly unique to each skull. Oh, yeah. And that's, I, I think that's an important thing to bring in here. You're absolutely so, beautiful, yeah. Beautiful. So, so because, because we don't think of it, we, we just look at our face and we realize, oh, there's a sinus, there's sinus things happening behind our face. But no, it's actually this space immediately contiguous to the brain, to the brain cavity, um, where, where processes are happening that we have um, no under, n not much conscious understanding about. And yet, um, um, I think the point that you're making is that is that they these arenas we grow up and we have we have experiences and that changes the way our bodies construct those chambers those those all these constructed little chambers and then we have to deal with the reality of what we've created that and what was created through the impression food that we received that oh, yeah. that affected that structure yeah so, so, and, and so the thing, but the thing is, is it's the frontal lobes. The, these things wrap up. You know how the, the lungs right. wrap around the heart. This mm -hmm. wraps around the front of the brain. That's right. Yeah. And um, so the key is, if you're under a lot of mental stress, you'll notice that people start sighing, and they start breathing, and they're not even maybe conscious of it. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I'm bringing the wings up specifically, I mean, you brought up uh, environmental and biases and everything we do, but the truth is when under crisis, when we relax, our instinctive nature automatically knows how to work these things instinctively. Mm -hmm. There's no conscious requirement on us to do this. And this is why I want to bring this up in the talk, and that's what I was trying to talk about two weeks ago, is that the higher emotion, uh, instinctual nature which also is akin to the higher emotional center, but the higher instinctual center 
the operating system that operates us knows how to handle crisis. We're built for it. We know how to do this. If we would get out of the way and just let it go, we'll start weeping. We will start breathing. You know, we will move around. We will, if we're under a lot of emotional pain, we'll, we'll start working the lungs. Now, we do this naturally. So that means these apparatus are built into us. And that's really the point I'm really trying to get across to people to be aware that we have a parts of us physical in our being to deal with this stuff. Yeah. And to raise above the malaise. We have that apparatus built into us. So then there's two sets. There's the right side and the left. That's the six wings. It lines up exactly to what Isaiah was saying. It lights up to anime, which I think is more important because anime is cool. And the fact that they, you <laughs> Maybe know, to you. beautiful, you know, <laughs> put a skirt on it, it's great, right? Uh, that's fun. But anyway. So, so, so I want to, I just want to. bring that out, that that's the sixth basic. Yeah. So, I mean, the key, the key phrase in there is if we get out of the way. Well, if we no, the, yeah, the key phrase is let the instinctual center do it. Right. Well, uh, but that, I want to go. Well, I, I want to add another a different point. Well, but I'll let, let you, let me I'll let you go ahead. It's just, uh, <laughs> you're kind of cool. I can see you in stereo. Wow. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you should live with us. <laughs> but, um, it's called. Uh, sometimes we're called the Bickersons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the the getting out of the way, I think, is important important because. Um, uh, uh, Spiritual practice and spiritual discipline to me is less about accruing powers as it is getting out of learning to get out of the way so that a natural power that's resident in our beings on various levels is able to harmonize and to operate. And I think that's important because it's, it's, it's not so much that you're learning how to do something in order to transcend, it's unlearning all the things that we do in order to keep ourselves from transcending. Well, you know, I, uh, if we do another podcast in another year, um, I'm working with a sensei on a particular aspect, which I'll share, and this is something I don't know yet because I'm learning it, and I'm an infant, um, and I am an infant here, is... Um, the more spiritual work one does on oneself, the more one is kind of effed. And <laughs> I was sitting there going, you've got to be joking, and, and it had to do with due diligence and vigilance. And the person was, I'm working with, who is Tibetan Buddhist and, uh, you know, a fundamentalist Christian and a Kung Fu master in several areas, put that mixed together uh, in, in his, uh, you know, 70s, uh, very interesting on in an individual, but what he said, which really struck me, is you're overriding the instinctual center by trying to be conscious all the time and being your due diligence and being and doing all your practices. When will you stop doing that? And it's like, I can't conceive what you're saying. And he says, um, if I cut your arm, do you make a blood clot? Can you can you clot your blood? And I go, not yet. He goes, good answer, not yet. Why would you want to? Why don't you just leave it alone and let it clot itself? 
you can see where this story is going. I'm going down the drain at the speed of an infant. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's similar to um, one of the classic uh, stories that come out of uh, All and Everything, or actually Meetings with Remarkable Men, I think it is, uh, that uh, where Gurdjieff is encounters someone who is uh, uh, a master of breath, and that person says, uh, you know, I think Gurdjieff was practicing chewing food until it was completely dissolved. And he said, why would you do that? Why are you doing this? You know, because, you know, you're overriding a natural process. Well, there's, there's goodness to it. I mean, we learn a lot. We build skill. We build capability. But the thing that I wanted to bring up is this idea of allowance, to allow something, just to allow it to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. And so we're bringing that. We talked about accountability. We did this, whatever's going on around us. We did this. I can't point at anyone else. We collectively did this in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And um, and I got one more thing I'll say on this, on that, but I'll come back to it. The second thing we talked about, and I'm just summarizing, just get my thoughts in order, but, you know, we talked about compulsion. We talked about this aspect of survival mode. When would you take, you know, draw, as you said, attention or me a cup of coffee, which is another form of attention. And when would, you know, how do we judge? How do we really lay out blame and, and lay out, you know, the pieces of the, the puzzle we don't want or we do want? And then we talked about, you know, the, the six wings or the, the three sets. I mean, the, the three aspects of that. And then we come back to this notion now of allowing just to allow all of that to be. Yeah. I am compelled. What does that mean? It means I will interfere with stuff. Let me finish the thought. What will I take? When I take, because I want it. When will I throw something away? You know, judge it as no. Is when I throw it in the garbage which could be a whole class of people. Those are the three things I will do. And I don't need anyone to give me feedback, uh, right, wrong, or ugly, because I'm going to do it anyway. And thanks for your opinion. I'm throwing that in the garbage. Or your advice, which I got an hour and a half ago. I'll put that on the shelf and I'll polish it for a while. So the issue is, is to allow that just to be. And to work with this breathing apparatus and just don't overdo it. Just be aware of it. It's so simple and it's so natural. And what I'm really trying to say today is we are made for this. Everyone does it. Being a senior spiritual practitioner doesn't make you immune from the malaise. Matter of fact, it makes you sticky, so get used to it. And B, everyone has the ability to rise up, so please take take the chance to take do that work. That work will help people. Sorry, I just had to bring my thoughts. Yeah, and that's a, that's okay. I I want to I want to jump in here because uh, it, when you, you use the word conscious, and and there is an implication in the way you use the word conscious. That is, practitioner senior practitioners <clears throat> have the idea. Certainly, I did when I was starting my training that that being conscious means, oh, I get to control 
what's going on. And and so and and uh, so the use of the word conscious, I think, to people who don't have a deep uh, language, it's a language. Yeah, it's a language, but it's also an experience and a set of experiences. Right. So. So, um, well, I, well, I, so let me just yeah. Well, I'm no, no, no. Let me let me let me just finish. It's, so, 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 when I'm conscious of what's going on in in my being, all these impulses that you're describing, the compulsions, obsessions, etc. Yeah. Um, it's not that being conscious doesn't mean oh, I'm in greater control of these things. It's actually that I'm creating room in my in my awareness. <laughs> To hold these things for what they are, to be, uh, to let them flower, to let the wings beat, etc. Yeah. And that's that's where that's where spiritual training um, actually has a place. But we have to realize that when we start it, we imagine that we're going to control yeah. our manifestation, so, so. and that's and that's a, that's mistaken. Let me let me just show you your history. Let me just finish. That is an aspect, absolutely. And that's the identification and just watching, observing, self-remembering. That's very important. The one other aspect I want to bring up with the breathing and, and the wing thing is to be mm-hmm. intentional, mm-hmm. and that, and that's the other part of the, to round out what you just said is to to be intentional with this. So we, we set the intention. So, and the thing about spiritual uh, practitioners, they work a lot at setting the intention mm-hmm. or being intentional. So, so, I, want, so sure. I want to jump in because uh, I have a no, practical please. example uh, to illustrate what I think we're talking about. Uh, this just came up for me on uh, Wednesday evening when we were doing our um, uh, a study group meeting by Zoom with some of our uh, uh, meditation practitioners. And... The during the day, I had had a difficult business day in the sense that I uh, discovered that I had misunderstood a requirement coming down from our corporate group that really was asking for a certain kind of uh, financial performance from our engineering organization, which we weren't staffed. You know, it's just the typical thing of like they want more and they want more, and. So I was carrying this because I was trying to figure out, I have no idea how this is going to happen. And um, when we did a meditation prior to the dialogue, I noticed my mind was doing the thing that my mind will do if it has a problem. You know, it's, it's, it, it could be a math problem, it could be a social problem, it could be a business problem, but it just kind of focuses down and there was just like this relentless trying to gnaw on this nut to try to uh, crack it and figure out what the solution is. And it was very distracting, but it was also very powerful because it had identity, it had looking good, all tied up into it, you know, uh, the, all the things that come up in a corporate environment. And there came a point where there was this realization, almost like a, uh, you know, another part of myself said, you can ask for help. And so I just stopped and I opened up and I did the things that I was, uh, in terms of breath, that I was learning with my Shakuhachi teacher, like opening the face, relaxing the face, opening the muscles, uh, opening my uh, chest area and lifting that up and just saying, I need help. Help me with this. I can't do this myself. And the quality of shift in that state was profound in that, in that instant because that nut just relaxed. And 
and then allowing allowing to me the way that speaks to me is that allowing is like I could just let the problem be and I could trust that it's gonna work itself out and that what's gonna what I need will be there when I need it. And I just have to take the, the concrete steps of organizing people and talking and, and creating a certain kind of energy around this so that uh, the, that I keep which the is what, what what Richard's calling intention. Yeah, uh, but I don't have to I don't have to do anything. But right, that, you just have to be intentional with it. Yeah. Right, but that but that the asking for help, correlating with realizing that what I because right before the meeting I'd, I'd had another lesson with my Shakuhachi teacher and we were doing all this stuff about you know activating the eye below muscles and activating you know loosening the lips and this, that, and the other. And so that habit pattern at the physical level was there. So I could, I could say, I, I could do that energetically coupled with the asking for help. And, and the rapidity of that shift was actually quite surprising. And the reason that's significant to me is, is that that kind of thing is available to us. But when we say, when, when you talk about, uh, uh, uh uh, stepping out of the malaise, it feels like that kind of action is uh, what is required, that we allow, we ask for help, we open ourselves. Well, it, it, what you're saying is really, really profound in that when you're in the malaise and you ask for help, it's like screaming in a hurricane. Yeah. It's good, but you're going to get a lot of in your mouth. Sleep, sorry. <laughs> but... Um, there's not a better word for it. Muda is probably a Japanese word for it, right? Okay, <laughs> yeah. Muda. But you're going to get a lot and eat some bugs on the way. Um, and you get help because there's people in the hurricane with you. And we have rescue services for the people in the hurricane. So, you know, it's, it, it's real. But when you rise above the malaise, and I'm not going the eye of the storm and all that crazy nonsense, because that's the kindness of the universe to have an eye of the storm. But I, you know, I'm not going to rely on the kindness of the universe to get this point across. When you raise above the storm, like in a plane, and you look down at this beautiful thing, and you ask for help, it's all over the place because the universe is that big. It's that big. Cause you, you see up above, it's infinite. It's huge. And the storm is all there. Okay, And that's beautiful to ask for help at that point after you raise up. Because asking for help down below is very tactical. Asking for help up above is very strategic. And I want to bring up another aspect of a kind of a, a secret or kind of a, a wonderful thing is there's one more set of wings. There's probably more. But there's one more set that's extremely critical. And we talked about singers and and people who sing use yeah. the emotional lung. We talked about musicians such as yourself who breathe and they, they, they do the sinuses. Now, you guys are like professional, okay? Athletes use their muscles in the back. Professional. These are, you know, they're really perfected, and they're beautiful to watch. You, know, you just watch some of the people, Olympics and sports, it's just beautiful to see their bodies in motion. And you literally can feel their wings, like physically, just the expanse of their physical being, emotional being through the singing and through that. And then the 
you know, some of the work that you do and other people do with, you know, the, the, the other area. But dancers have some, a knowledge of something else. And I'm bringing up these very specific areas because humans have perfected these wings to the highest degree, is the ankles. And it is the Greek metaphor, you know, the wings on the ankle. But the three bones in the ankle are extraordinary. And in most uh, people, they're locked and they don't function. And people need to realize the ankle is the key to communication. It allows for a type of communication. It's, it's atmospheric, but it's electromagnetic. And I hate the word electromagnetic, but I'm, it's energy, but I don't want to talk about energy because energy sounds silly in this context, even though it's real. But it really is a connection point of communication. And it allows a lot because there's three bones and there's a lot of things there. And the feet are, you know, the most complex atomical structure. And they have to do with our ability to be grounded, to be tethered. So we have the ability to fly, but we also have the ability to come home and be here. Well, that's interesting to me because uh, when you say uh, the feet are the this... Um really complex anatomical structure. It's not like we have hooves. We actually have these feet which have, uh, at least as, as uh, paleoanthropologists look at it, the, the capacity for us to spring up. When we walk, you every nailed. step is, we're springing up. You, you guys going to the word spring. You hit it because the feet are springs. The rib cage is springs. Mm -hmm and our sinuses are springs. The springing mechanism allows us to spring. It gives us the bounce to get out of things. Mm -hmm. It sounds okay. so simple, and it is. We're built for it. We're made for it. We can do this. You don't have to go to school to learn it because it's instinctual. Well, let me, it, I agree I agree with, with, with all this point, and, and, but I want to That's add, so important. It uh, pays for the party that you agree. hard <laughs> <laughs> uh, twenty minutes. <laughs> and and I want to add something else that 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 uh, you know my teacher used to assert that actually the instincts can learn. They're not only they're not only just set. You know we're born and and there they are and uh, but actually they're a dynamic system as much as anything else in the universe is a dynamic system. And so in many ways, spiritual practice, um, uh, various things that we do to play with consciousness, to play with awareness, um, can, can involve, skillfully can involve the, um, uh, the education of aspects of these instinctive systems. Now, our minds think we know what to tell ourselves what to do. To get back to this point, uh, you know, I was making earlier about being conscious or not conscious about um, what we think um, we're going to achieve through various different intentional practices. But um, 
but my teacher used to say, used to say you need to uh, train these instinctive systems, but, you, but what he didn't say um, was that you, you may think you know what they need to learn, but you don't know what they need to learn because you don't actually have, there's no way the mind can encompass what these right. instinctive systems can, um, can actually do in just the way that you've been outlining throughout this conversation. Well, so it, it, so the, training, the training is exposing the instinctive systems to experiences which will affect them. Yeah, the, 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 you bring up some beautiful points. The um, consciousness is the reaction of active intelligence to pattern. That is consciousness. So that's, that's a clip, and uh, I get to be right because I said it, but I didn't make it up. But I, it's a good thing to be right about. But consciousness is the reaction of active intelligence to pattern. So the other aspect of these wings that's so critical and we were just talking about this with someone yesterday about white blood, you know, speed pandemic for a minute, and talk about white, white blood cells. They're in the body. They're part of the immune system. They come up to a thing. They interrogate it. They ask for its ID. Mm -hmm. um, then they check the ID against the database, whatever you know, which is DNA is a massive database. And they go, nah, I don't think you should be here. So they either eat it or dissolve it or take it apart, break it down, but they pretty much surround it, mm -hmm. okay? Well, the wings are part of our spiritual immune system. They connect to the atmospheric immune system of our subtle bodies. And I don't want to be mystically jumbled. That's training. And what good is it? doesn't matter. I don't even know how the car works to be able to get across the street. I know how to drive it. And that's good. I'm not trying to be clever and say people need to study more. I'm actually saying the opposite. People need to do more, probably yes. study less. Do more. Exactly. And they need to be everything. <laughs> so it's be everything and own it right now because mass is what we care about. We need mass. The greater the mass, which is knowledge, the greater the possibility. Now, mass is thin, and mass is finite. But people waste their mass, they throw their mass around, and they're going to be throwing, you know, chunks of mass at each other. We also call that poo. And the thing is, is we need mass. I'm sorry. That's the key, is mass. So how does one increase mass? By getting more volume. How does one get more volume? Through breath through increasing volume. But density, we need a greater density. I don't mean stupidity for those who want to be dense. I'm talking about density of light or energy or knowledge. The soul is a knowing substance. Ask it to inform you. So I, I want to jump in again. I'll, I'll bring the theme of uh, the metaphors from my Shakuhachi practice. Um, Go ahead. Uh, one aspect, since you tied this into the pandemic and red cells and things like that, that uh, comes up is at one point in a practice uh, uh, a month or two ago, you know, there was a particularly ex 
exquisite or expressive sound that I was able to convey after, you know, however many, you know, half hour of uh, him working with me. And he said, you know, that's that energy. When that, when that energy is coming out, uh, you know, the coronavirus can't get you. Oh, really? <laughs> like the the receptors on the end of the virus don't aren't attracted that's to that. That's a great belief. That's a wonderful belief. Yeah, and, I love it. But I could feel the truth of that in that moment because energetically I was sending out and I noticed that, um, you know, when we are weakened or depilitated or, uh, you know, let's say identified with the malaise, that we tend to go in. We sort of like invite, attack in. We sort we of make room. We yeah, make room. We, we kind of go in like this. Our chest collapses and yeah. things like that. But when you're out like this, it's like things blow away. So that's one point. Um, and... Uh, but I would have to put the child disclaimer, you know, don't do this at home for children, <clears throat> thinking that you can just sing a song and the virus goes away, right. because uh, we don't want to mislead the, you know, uh, people at home. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm but not trying I, to. I like the idea because you know, if we all learned how to sing well, maybe we'd be a happier group. I'm telling yeah. you, but you're right. But yeah, and I'm not trying to advocate that this is a cure-all. I'm just having fun with you. Go ahead. No, but. but <laughs> It suggests that uh, there's uh, that there's something more than just the uh, the physical mechanism of uh, you know the biological model that we're just we're just uh, you know uh, biological dead things that you know receive viruses. But the other point I wanted to mention about uh, mass is that uh, one of the tricks that work, and I don't know why it works is, you know, with my Shakuhachi teacher, you know, we talk about the the lips, the face, the sinuses, the body, the lungs, and all that. And and then he says, well, how many bodies do you have? And I say, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you have, you know, at least, you know, three bodies. So uh, once you play, you know, we've done a bunch of stuff, you're doing that well, now do it with the outer body. And then I yeah. do that. And I set that intention. And suddenly the sound fills the space, the energy fills the space. And, and I think, you know, one thing that we haven't completely covered here is that it's not just this physical body we have, you know, it's like, no, I, I know where you're going. I that, know where that, you're that principle extends out and our intention can activate that. And again, it's the intention. We're not doing it so much as we're turning it on. We're turning the switch on and then letting yeah, it do what it does. I, I, look, I, I can't argue. I like where you're going. I mean, but you know, there's so much control in that. And there's so much spiritual practice. And I'm not saying it's wrong because you're actually building capability. But what I'm trying to get back to, to be simple, in, in a world of crisis, uh, for me, worrying about how many bodies I have when I'm getting the kicked out of me, my etheric body doesn't really protect blows when someone's yelling at me. It just really doesn't. I hit them with my etheric, and they just kind of like don't stop. I'm I'm playing with you a little bit, but the thing is, is what you're saying is all right. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, you know, believe it or not, it, 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 who cares what people believe? But it, there's truth to it because we are multidimensional, and that's just a fact of life. But what I want to get to is the really depth of being here is what I'm. I, I want to. I'm trying to express for this talk, you know, for this podcast, is we're made for this. We created it, therefore we can handle it. That's the law. 
okay? This is our doing. We can deal with it because we have to. There's no escape. We have the apparatuses to rise above certain aspects of it and to really be helpful to ourselves and others. We don't have to be spiritually inclined. We don't have to go to school. We don't have to hang out with Sufis or Buddhists or priests or God knows what or talk to angels or aliens or whatever we do. We don't have it to do any of that. It'd be nice if we did because we'd have some colorful conversation and we could have some fun with it. But, you know, the truth is, is we're made for this and we just need to be it. Sorry, I'm being very simple and pragmatic, but. Really, I really, really want to express that. And I thank mm -hmm. you for giving me the option to say this. And if people disagree with me, I don't care. Have fun. You know, enjoy life. And, 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 and you know, paint colors in the malaise. Because if it's <laughs> colorful, it's a lot more entertaining. Just don't be stupid and hurt people. I, I, I like the image of, of rainbow malaise. Rainbow yeah, you know, I've got I to I tell you one more story. Um, and this is kind of a, a harsh story, but i got to say it. Um, I'm in the Seattle area, and as people know, a lot of stuff happened in Seattle. And uh, for many of us, our children are involved because they, they're involved. And why wouldn't they be? Especially, you know, young, you know, kids in their 20s. Uh, this is their time. Mm -hmm. So they, they got opinions. And... Uh, and I get to be, you know, the old person on the side going, well, my, you know, I get first-hand information. So mm -hmm. I'm out in my my te my little Airstream temple out in the middle of nowhere, isolated, trying to be in the forest or cave, which I can't get away from the toxic waste. Because where I live, I just found out was a toxic waste site, for real. <laughs> and they had to bring in uh, people to remove the toxic waste. I just <laughs> learned that a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, makes sense. I'm in paradise, but this used to be a dark place. Though. No joke. Absolutely no joke. The owner who bought it lost like a million dollars and is still trying to recover from it. But anyway, um, I noticed something so profound that at the actual real time of some of the most misbehavior you can imagine that was publicized, and I'm getting firsthand information, I look out the window and I'm noticing the clouds are extraordinary and I, I'm not being fanciful mm -hmm. I went outside and I'm looking up at the sky and I'm going I've never in my life seen clouds of that for, like that it's beyond heaven I mean it was gorgeous it's like I can't even express it to you I can't even try and I looked and I said those clouds are over top of the area because I can see that far where they're fighting mm. I wonder if anyone looked up to see how beautiful the environment is right now just how beautiful everything is. And I came back and I looked out the window and I saw the cat talking to the birds. The crows and the cat were actually, there's like four, they were having a conversation. And I'm watching them and I'm going, they're really talking to each other. And they're responding and they don't seem to care about what's happening in my greater area with the humans. And I had this thing happen, this moment that the world was, the unit, you know, things were very happy because the humans were finally feeding the rest of creation by being themselves. It's going to sound dark, but we were dealing with our beep. Um, 
I'm just going to warn you so you can get the timing right. But we're dealing with our stuff, and the universe was appreciative. And I felt that if we focused on our greater environment, that would be such a wonderful thing because it is beautiful. Now, I'm not in the inner city, so I can't say that's beautiful where the fighting takes place because it isn't beautiful there. And I'll be honest, it's pretty. I'm an architect. It's pretty ugly. But we did it. I'm an architect. We could have done better. But you wouldn't pay me, so I put in strip malls and I put in crappy buildings. That's how I made my living. Could we have done better? Of course we could. But we didn't have the imagination to be better because we worship money. So guess what? I'm not blaming anybody. It's our fault. Why does fighting take place there? They're not fighting up here in paradise where I live, but they're fighting in, in, in an ugly place. Beauty. The sole purpose of love is beauty. If we can become more beautiful and more imaginative in this time period, that would be great. Well, I'll just, I'll, to that, I will just add that um, beauty has many aspects, and one of those is poignancy. And, and, and that quality sometimes is forgotten. Because we imagine that, that beauty is some kind of platonic ideal that's out there. It's actually how the universe expresses itself. I'm, I totally resonated with what you're saying about the, the natural world because, you know, we have, we have this little, you know, three quarters of an acre we live on. And I go outside into, into the garden that I work in. I go outside to um, the end of the trees and listen to the squirrels and, you know, the various living creatures, and they have no problem enjoying what's going on right now. That's true. They have no problem. The plants are going, oh, sun, you know, and then I water them, and they're, they, they drink it up. And, <laughs> and it's like, uh, um, it's, such a, it's such a healing reminder to me that these, that these processes that have, that have evolved, and I mean that I'm using the word evolved in, in, in multiple senses. Uh, they have evolved to operate in ways that if we just stop and pay attention, we will, we will find that beauty that you were describing in the clouds above you, above us all, that we get to use our wings to, to visit and touch from time to time. Absolutely. I mean... Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful. Poignancy is the right word for it because there's an emotional expression through the beauty that yeah. uh, uh, I, I can't not tell you. You understand it. I know you've all experienced it. Um, but I realized in that moment that if, if I look to the larger environment, the atmospheric environment which I'm in, mm -hmm. this is atmospheric, we have to another podcast on water, and, you know, <laughs> earth or fire, but the the atmospheric aspect of this is something we can deal with, and there's a beauty that is is just there, and uh, but so anyway, I feel like I've put out a lot here. I don't know where to go with anything else. I feel. No. Uh, I've said what I said. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have a few minutes left here, and I wanted okay. to, I just wanted to kind of underscore this last point of, uh, you know, the work we can do 
uh, everyone can do is to appreciate beauty uh, and and to invoke that beauty even in the darkest moments. That to me that does something, and uh, my sense is that there's a spiritual awe uh, that we hear in various forms that what we feed grows. Yeah, I was told uh, today and yesterday by a very learned person that uh, love just is kind of dead. It doesn't seem to work, which I profoundly disagree with in every shape, matter, form um, at a spiritual level. I completely disagree. But the point is, I carry with me what I said before, that the sole purpose of love is beauty. And I carry that with me. So when I see that, I experience love. Mm -hmm. And it's the love that makes it work. The beauty is just there, cause and effect of its own effect, right? And I'm perceiving beauty, and I'm choosing to make it beautiful to my own eye, and my own spirit, and my own being. Other people may have not even put attention on it or even saw it, or it may not even matter. I was kind of worried. I was not worried, worried um, considering what the animals were looking at because they were all into it, and I realized that's their element. They live it. I get to feel separate from it, and that's when I start feeling the malaise. And well, it's in, that's interesting because um, I'm... I'm looking at the animals too, and the trees and the plants, et cetera. And, and I'm wondering if, I'll, I'll, I'll back up here for just a moment. My, my teacher's teacher wrote a book called The Human Biological Machine as a Transformational Apparatus, which certainly refers to much of the, thread, the threads um, we've woven together in this conversation. But, um, I'm wondering if those, uh, the, this, you know, we separate ourselves from the quote natural world unquote, which we cannot separate ourselves from in any meaningful way. But, but, um, but those um, transformational ideas, um, I think, are our attempts to recognize that love generates beauty as you were as you were saying and um and and we're bringing this you know in fourth way terms we're we're bringing this this uh primate brain into something you know we're 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 creating through active imagination a capacity to appreciate beauty that 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 maybe all these other incredible beings don't haven't developed to the extent that we are being asked to develop it. So when you talk about the the beauty of your of of these twenty somethings, your children and others um, fighting, there's a beauty there too because they are expressing. Yeah, I can't take it away from them. They yeah, they and, and I and I wouldn't. <laughs> And I, I wouldn't would take it away from them either. And even, even there's there's a beauty in the in the collective of, you know, the United States and the world more generally in terms of the 
the uh, dissension and, and uh, antagonism that's going on too. And we just, um, I, I mean, I don't want to be simplistic about this, but it's a big thing to hold. And it's well, hard. There's, there's, a, there's the pain and sadness with it. Yes, exactly. Beauty is, beauty is ultimately painful. Yeah. And I'm old enough to be able to say that, that beauty is extremely painful. And um, the more beautiful, the more pain. And I, and people can argue with me, and I'd say that's ugly. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, <laughs> it'll be ugly. Uh, agree with me. Um, but it it it, uh, it kind of rounds everything out. But I don't want like you. I don't want to be simplistic and say you know love's the answer. All you need is love. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, if that were like... true, then you know Lenin would be you know he would be God, and he's gone. So I don't worship dead people. But there is there is something here, and I do hope that this this time we spent. I'm really reluctant to do a podcast at this time because everybody talks about a lot of stuff, and who needs to hear more words? Really, there's just too much sound in the noise right now. But you did ask, um, and and I hopefully you know some of this made sense, but. You know, I I worry too for all of us that you know we we are overly struggling, um, but we did it. And I'm remember talking about this 30 years ago, mm. and I remember getting trained for this time period and be told you'll be trained, and and then it hits and you go like, what training? <laughs> Am I ready for this? I I didn't want this. And, and then, you know, can I get away from it? And then you travel the world, you run, and, and, and everywhere you go, there you are, and there it is. Yeah. Because it looks like it's outside, but it's not. Well, we we appreciate the time you've taken with us today. Uh, my spiritual teacher, uh, and I get this from my uh, Shakuhachi teacher as well, um, you know, often say you, you need to hear something thousands of times uh, for it to take root. So uh, although uh, it may be more words right now, it's the kind of words that I think uh, are useful to hear, and that's why we're committed to have conversations like this. Yeah, and, and words, are, words are not just dead things. They can carry energy and even perceptivity in a kind of way, or they can help people open up to um, energies that they some they usually or may, they may habitually forget that they have access to. So um, so that's what we hope for these conversations, and that's why we wanted you. You know, we solicited you to to have this conversation now because in that earlier conversation we referred to, it, it, it's you know I was touched, and I wanted to share that with our with our audience. Wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a pre-recorded conversation with Sufi practitioner and strategic consultant Richard Webb. Richard has been driving the development of cutting-edge solutions in global Fortune 500 environments in the high-tech industry for over 20 years. As a young man, Richard entered into an intensive apprenticeship with noted Sufi teacher Rashad Field 
and ultimately worked with Field and his community for almost 20 years. Having established himself in the world both professionally and with a family, he found himself at a crossroads in the early 2000s that led to his initiation into a shamanic tradition. His work was soon complemented with the initiation into the Tibetan Cho tradition, which weaved in a web of community support into the sometimes wild and elemental work of the shamanic tradition. He brings an earthy and immediate wisdom to our conversation that is both deadly serious yet leavened with humor and compassion. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.